This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and do our best to answer them. So if you have a question, contact us at podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our um, monthly newsletter and uh, maintenance stories, we're just sending out a really good maintenance story today, I think. The easiest way to do that is to uh, pick up your mobile phone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little email bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. That's uh, text SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on the list. All right. So I have a, have a thing I did. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's you always did something. something I did. Here comes an admission. <laughs> no, no. Well, sort of. It's one of those, uh, you know, you do the, the you think about, uh, am I going to look at something? Because if I look... I can't not unsee it, mm. but my engine has a bit over 2,200 hours on it. Way back when there were some cylinders pulled, not because anything wrong with the cylinders, but because um, some exhaust studs had eroded and broken off. So they were just pulled off to replace the studs, put right back on. And the engine's using a pretty good amount of oil. And we've talked before on the show about uh, I'm losing a little bit of airspeed. So my plane's in for annual and I'm doing an autopilot upgrade. And I made the decision that I wanted to see the lifters because I thought, well, maybe I've got some lifter wear. It's a 20 year old engine. So I pulled all the lifters out of the left side and lo and behold, they were all perfect. Absolutely beautiful. All the cam lobes are absolutely beautiful. One Uh, exhaust cam lobe on cylinder number two had one little bitty pit in it, but not at the apex. It was on the the upward side. And I was absolutely thrilled. I did replace one lifter because it had a few little pits around, but nothing serious. So it's kind of a weird feeling, but it's like, oh, I have a brand new engine now because I know what uh, all the important bottom end stuff I know about and not worried about the cylinders. The compressions uh, are mostly okay. <laughs> you know, uh, the boroscope looks good, but that was, uh, you know, one of those things you, it's kind of, you hold your breath when you 
take those I, out. I, I got to tell you, Paul, I, I, what were you thinking when you decided to pull those lifters? I mean, well, were you were you doing a pre-buy on your own airplane? Well, Why so would you it, do something like well, that? Well, it, it hit me. It didn't hit me. But, you know, all the things I talk about and, and we talk about, the camshaft was my concern. At 2,200 hours, if I had some lifters that were bad, I wanted to get those out. I wanted to find out before I ruined the cam. So that was really my objective. It, it wasn't the lifters. It was the cam. Because if the, if the lifters were bad, I was going to get those replaced and hopefully save the cam and save pulling the engine. Because And you don't, you don't think that if you had a bad lifter, you would, you would see some metal in the filter? Do you really have to do the, that invasive a way of finding out? Well, I have had a couple of engines over the years where we have discovered lifters that were pummeled and no obvious evidence in the oil filters because it happened over such a long period of time. So this was the, it was six man hours to pull them and put them right back in and just a minimally invasive kind of thing to do and just gave me a huge amount of confidence that I was not somehow failing a, a camshaft. Well, now you should buy a lottery ticket, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> but anyway, it's it. the funny thing, the reason I'm bringing it up is the, the change in attitude about the engine. It's, you know, some people put on a new engine, they're all excited, I've got this engine, and what do they usually say? It's running strong. And I have no clue what that means. <laughs> or what they think it means, but yeah, my engine is running strong. And so now I haven't run the engine yet, but I just know that when I get it back out, it's going to run strong. That's, yeah. that's my uh, it, story. They, you know, they, 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 they always run strong right up until it's, they don't. Right know. up until they don't. Well, at least you could take your lifters out. It's nice to have a Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, I'm sorry. That's one for Continental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. On Lycoming's, you can take your suction screen out. On Continental's, yeah. you can take your lifters out. Your lifters I out. I'm Maybe not those sure two guys ought to compare <laughs> notes. Together. Somebody, somebody well, I take that together. back because Lycoming tried once to go to barrel style lifters. Oh, yeah, it was on bad. That, uh, 0320 H2AD. H2AD yeah. that was in the Skylane for about two years until they decided that was a terrible idea and they went back to the old one. So. Anyway, I'm excited. Well, congratulations. I'm, I'm putting in my new autopilot, and uh, the shop is, is closed between Christmas and New Year, and I will be out here every day, hopefully, getting, getting it back Getting something done. <laughs> Our first question is from Chris, who is tired of his dirty belly. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> well, greetings, guys. <laughs> Colleen. Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thanks for producing such a great podcast. I need some advice. I own a 1968 Piper Comanche uh, single engine with the Lycoming IO540 engine. It has about uh, 1,900 hours on the engine. Unfortunately, about 10 years ago, the engine developed a split-line oil leak towards the front left of the block. Now, oil consumption is about one quart every two and a half to three and a half hours, majority of it being uh, placed on the airplane's belly's left side. Now, some mechanics say there's nothing to be done until overhaul time, while others have tried covering the leak with fuel tank sealant, but uh, it really didn't work. Uh, they even tried an air oil separator, and that didn't work either. 
I've read about a trick that requires pulling a slight vacuum on the engine from the filler tube while having the breather lines plugged and then spreading like a, a line of Loctite 290, the, the self-wicking type, around the, uh, the leaking area. Now, my uh, current mechanic doesn't believe the oil leak to be really worth his time, but my OCD keeps this issue in my mind every single flight. <laughs> now, I know what you're going to say. I know oil is cheap, but is there anything I can do uh, to seal this leak or... Do I really simply have to continue dealing with it until time comes to overhaul the engine? I wasn't going to say oil is cheap. I was going to say oil is messy. Yeah, it's messy. It would bug me. Well, I'm and with there's you, there's Chris. no way that you're running a quart out of a leak in the crankcase every <laughs> yeah. three hours. So what that else would do we be have? <laughs> a quart of oil coming out of a leak would be there'd be puddles in the cowling and the belly would be you would be dripping a silhouette of the airplane on the ramp. So, so Paul, you're saying we got two different problems going we at do. the same yes. time. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got you've got something going on with the inside of the engine and we can talk about that in a minute. You've got a a, a leak from this split in the case halves or whatever. That would be the least of my concern. I mean, unless the engine is getting totally covered in oil, if it's the oil is on the belly then the leak in the crankcase is something I would ignore for the moment and deal with the other one first. But that doesn't, yeah, like like homing actually has an approved procedure, doesn't it? For for seepage at the seal at the yeah, seam, for, for putting some kind of epoxy on there or something. I remember seeing a like homing with just like tons of this epoxy all over, and and I questioned it, and and Eric, who's who's an engine builder, doesn't has built a lot of like homing engines, and so yeah, that's an approved procedure. Well, my, my Cardinal had RTV all down the seam when I first bought it, and that didn't work at all. So it won't stick. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it definitely wasn't yeah. RTV. It yeah. looked kind of like JB Weld is what it looked yeah. like. Yeah. It was gray and hard. Have fun uh, taking that thing apart when you do <laughs> Yeah, I, that's, that was my reaction problem. is I said, I'll, I'll, I, you yeah. know, I would hate to be the engine builder who has to split the case, but. But that's, that's interesting. Somebody Mike, else's you don't, problem. You don't remember um, if, if it's a service letter or something like that? I don't actually read about it on the uh, on the forums. The thing is, if you put a vacuum on the crankcase and suck some sort of sealant inside, you don't know how far it goes. And I'd be really concerned about that uh, because on the well, your camshaft is in the top, so you're going to put this on the bottom. There really isn't anything for it to get into, but you still don't know where it goes. That would be my concern. Into um, like oil galleries, that would be bad. Yeah, right? oil galleries, uh, maybe the, up into the, the nose the case where the bearing is. Yeah. But if there's a if there's a lycoming procedure, which I don't know about it, I've not I've not seen that. But I almost never see lycomings anymore. So I'm sorry. <laughs> what's almost everything I see is big bore continentals. Blah. Um, oh, ah, <laughs> no scoffing. Discrimination. Discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, you know, but my first thought when I read this was, yeah, where else is the oil going? And the question was, at 1,700 hours, are they original cylinders, Chris, or are they, have they been overhauled once or replaced? Uh, they look like original cylinders. And yes, the, uh, except for uh, one of them that was replaced a little bit ago. But uh, so, yes, the, the engine bay is uh, pretty much saturated with, uh, with oil. Does it have puddles? Do you, I mean, do you clean the the engine bay at oil change time and see how much puddling occurs, you know, in, in the 50 hours between oil changes? 
Everything's just coated with a, a layer of oil. There's some areas that have uh, maybe a little bit more puddling than others, but uh, generally it comes out the uh, the seam underneath. Well, it goes everywhere when it comes out, right? So there's there's a yeah, lot a little, of Yeah, a little oil goes a long way. I, I, I think Paul's point is well taken that that, that that's that leak is certainly not accounting for all oil consumption, but but it is messy and it's probably worth trying to stop. I wish I had the service letter from Lycoming's number at my fingertips. I don't. I just seem to recall that it's that Lycoming does have some procedure for trying to deal with things those, those things. So it'd be worth it would be worth researching and finding it out, giving it a shot. But the the rest of the oil you could very easily be burning it. Well, it could, or more likely, could be blowing it out the breather if it's on the belly. Yeah, yeah. That's if it's, what if it's burning, it is not going to be on the belly. He didn't say that. He said it was in the engine compartment. Well, but he said he has. The, the, Chris, I think we have two, the belly, two problems yeah. here. Yeah, Helene. the 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 stuff in the engine compartment is coming from the, the, the crack, the, the leak. Okay. Yeah, the leak is probably fixable. At least it's worth it worth the try. That's not going to account for all the oil consumption. That's only going to account for a tiny fraction of the oil consumption. The rest of the oil consumption is, you know, e- e- either the either the oil's being burned or the oil's being ejected because of uh, blow-by. Right. Okay. And uh, the, with a 1,700-hour engine, the blow-by philosophy is probably more, more probable. A ring wash might be worth a try. You just never know until you do it, whether it's going to work or not. Sometimes it works on some of the cylinders, not on other cylinders. And, um, but it's certainly worth a, worth a try to, to, to clean gunk out of the ring lands. And Chris, do you understand the, the concept of the, the blow-by is being caused because the cylinder's um, pressurized and this, the rings, the oil control rings are not sealing, so the uh, oil's getting blown into the crankcase and it's going out the, the breather tube onto your belly? That makes sense, and I see what you're saying that the uh, this could be masking a, a different issue. Yeah, it's not really oil that's that's going past the rings. It's 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 uh, combustion byproducts that are getting past the rings that are pressurizing the crankcase. The crankcase is full of an oil mist whenever the engine is running, a very dense oil mist. So if there's excessive crankcase pressure, then there's going to be excessive discharge out the breather, and and that discharge out the breather is the breather is there to allow pressure in the crankcase to get vented overboard, but the air inside the crankcase is is heavily laden with oil, and so it, it carries a bunch of oil with it going out the breather. If that leak can't be JB welded, then it's a bad leak. It's a bad <laughs> leak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, good luck with that, and thanks for calling in. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah. Okay, thanks, care. Chris. Our next question is from Lance, who I think needs a little reassurance about his leaning procedures. How are you doing, Lance? Great. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. What's up today? Well, okay. So the, when I submitted the question, uh, it was a while back. Um, I have since, against some recommendations, done a complete top overhaul. Just put all new cylinders on. Yeah, that would be against all recommendations. Okay, so I don't even done. know what the problem Bye. was, but we're already, we're already <laughs> against recommendations. You get the get the hook. <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm afraid of damaging cylinders, and I pulled off two that were uh, beyond repair limits. So, yeah, I'm trying to trying to baby. That doesn't mean that they well, were bad. 
Yeah, what were the repair that, you limits? See, that's the, that's the thing. If you pull a cylinder off, there's a chance you might not be able to put it back on. It's a really good reason not to pull it off in the first place. Yeah, what but it can sustain know, while it's on you. the engine is totally different than what you're allowed to put back on the engine. <laughs> well, COVID be damned, I was able to uh, find six new Continental cylinders. So, I'm... Mm-hmm. so anyway, uh, you know, old school, started flying in 76. You, know, you lean till it gets a little bit rough, push it back in. Mike, I've heard you say that, and that's, uh, that's the way I was trained. But then I look at the uh, red fin uh, in, in, uh, the, in an article that you published a while back, and it seems like what I'm doing puts me right in the middle of the red fin or, or red, uh, red box, which concerns me. Can't do that. And the, the second part to that question is when I put the new cylinders on, went through the uh, break-in procedure, said, you know, lean, lean until you get up 390, you know, keep it below 400 degrees on your CHTs. Well, I can open the cow flaps on a 185 and make it as cool as you want. So my other part of the question is, if the cylinder heads are not cold, can you still get detonation? Well, let me let me go to the, the first one. If you're leaning till the engine is rough, you are really lean a peak to the point that at least one cylinder has quit running. So you're way outside the red box, assuming, so you have a fuel-injected IO520, correct? In your 185? Yes. So have you done a, a lean test to find out what the spread is? Um, Ooh, I'm going to take your hesitation as a no. <laughs> Let him answer, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what my differences uh, and temperatures are. I can't really speak to that. Well, again, gammy spread is not has nothing to do with differences in temperature. It has to do with the fuel flow when the first cylinder peaks. Uh, compared to the fuel flow when the last cylinder peaks. When I say first, I, I, I mean the leanest cylinder. When I say last, I mean the richest cylinder. And the difference in those two fuel flows, which is a, in gallons per hour, is the gammy spread. We like to see the gammy spread no greater than one gallon per hour. If you can get it down to a half a gallon per hour, that's that's, that's ideal. If it's much over one gallon per hour, you would benefit greatly by putting position-tuned injectors, GAM ejectors, or the Continental position-tuned injectors on the engine. But, you know, what you, with your question about the red fin, you said, well, you lean to the onset of roughness, and then you and, and you push it back in. And the question is, how far do you push it back in? Yeah. It, in a normal leaning with a good GAMI spread, you pull back to roughness, push it forward just till it smooths out, Everything is way lean a peak. And no further. That's the key. Yeah, no further. Yeah, you don't keep pushing it in. And and the reason why Mike asked about your gammy spread is if you had one big outlier, you could go, you know, lean to the proper place with that one, but the other ones would be up closer to the peak, and that would put you closer to the red box. What are your CHTs running in cruise flight when you're lean the way you're leaning? 390 on the hottest one. And uh, then the rest are considerably cooler. And is that with cow flaps closed? That's with about one notch open. And if I open them, they'll drop way off. Well, there's no no reason to cool them off more than that. 390 is perfectly acceptable for the hottest cylinder. And and the 
you know, the, the more you cool them down with the cowl flaps, the more cooling drag you're incurring. So it, it'll slow you down a little bit. So there's no reason to cool them down more than they need to be cooled down. But that sounds fine. So I would not be concerned that you're, that you're in the red anything as long as your CHTs mm -hmm. are. If your CHTs are, uh, have a three in the front of them, you're, you're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> so That's now it. I could do that down at, at, at 6,000 feet, I could okay. I could have the CHTs all below 400. Sure. You're saying I can't hurt that engine by leaning it out. That's right. Nope. That's right. It lean of peak makes it easier on your engine by letting your cylinders run cooler. Yes. You lose a little bit of power, but you gain a lot of longevity. But provided I am lean of peak. Yeah. You've yeah. got to be lean. You, yeah. You've got to have all six cylinders lean of peak, which is what I was concerned about as well. If you lean to roughness and it's only one or two cylinders that are not firing, but the other ones are rich at peak, then you've got issues. But that engine with gammy injectors, and you've done a, a gammy lean test, or you will now go do a gammy lean test with, with your new cylinders. And if they're, if your spread is, is less than a gallon an hour, then you're not in the red box. I'm, I'm not sure why you thought you were in the red box. It would be a good idea to do a gammy lean test because if your if your gammy spread is bigger than a gallon an hour, then you would benefit from installing tuned injectors, which would be a whole lot cheaper than six cylinders, by the right. way. Right. Anyway, did we get your questions answered or did we <laughs> did we berate you too much? We, we were trying we, not we, to. We digressed a little bit there. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I hang on your words. Um, so if, let's just say I, I got really weird and I wanted to cause detonation. Would that be just a little rich of peak down at a low altitude with high cylinder pressures? I mean, I'm just wondering, where where is my uh, no-go zone on this Min motor? Minimum detonation margin occurs roughly 40 degrees on the rich side of peak. So if you intentionally wanted to get the engine into detonation, that would be the best mixture. At a higher power if you setting. If you didn't yeah. want to, that would be the worst mixture. <laughs> <laughs> and then Gammy says below 65% power, just lean any way you want. And you're not going to hurt anything. That's pretty much true. So, somewhere between 60 and 65% power, you, uh, you, can, you can put the mixture controller anywhere you want. But again, it, running the engine lean is better for the engine. Operating lean of peak reduces the internal pressures and temperatures and it also keeps things a lot cleaner in the combustion chamber what you can always tell when you stick a bore scope in the cylinder of an engine you can always tell how that whether the pilot was ran the engine richard peak or lena peak because if he ran at richard peak there's all sorts of combustion deposits on everything and if he ran at lena peak it's usually pretty clean and your last cylinder to go lena peak uh some people around here do it 10 degrees does that sound Reasonable? Uh, I don't think in other words, the, the last, uh, as you go over peak and you get your, your icicle display, like on a 730. Yeah. Uh, does, if the last cylinder is dropping down 10 degrees on the lean side of peak, is that sufficiently lean enough? enough? Depends on where the other ones are as well. Well, they're lean. And your power setting. Because, yeah, the, the, the other yeah. ones will go down into the 20s and 30s lean. But the last one generally is about 10 degrees lean a peak. Just over the edge. And uh, just over the edge. Mm -hmm. And uh, power settings, you know, in the West, we're typically 8,000 feet. So 
at 8,000 feet, that engine, that engine can't develop more than about 70% power at eight, well, maybe even 65. So you can pretty much lean it anywhere you want just by virtue of the altitude. So you're okay. I lean my, I have an IO 550 <laughs> in my Cirrus and at 8,000 feet, I typically lean to peak. Okay. You don't believe That's reassuring us, do you, hearing from you, Paul. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm old. I, 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 mean, I, I can just, see that. I can doing, see you trying. I've been doing this. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a lousy mechanic, but at AMP school back in 76, uh, this old World War II guy was showing us pistons with holes in them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, those were supercharged engines, right? Those were, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have engine instrumentation back then. That's right. one thing, right? Thanks for calling in. Yeah. It's absolutely my favorite podcast. So so excited to see that you guys started doing this. I just I wish you could do them more frequently because they're great. Okay. Well, we have thank a you. Doing it. <laughs> we we do enjoy it. We really appreciate your question. <laughs> Our next question is from Chris, who is really getting his hands dirty. Go ahead, Chris. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. So my question pertains to corrosion in turbine aircraft fuel tanks, particularly in cadmium-plated fasteners in Jet-A systems. I work on turbine aircraft, and it isn't uncommon to find fasteners with brown powdering or like a staining on and around them on the structure. And the deposits really smell like sulfur, and you cannot get the smell off no matter how much Dawn dish soap or whatever you choose to use. So the staining and deposits are on Adele clamps, B-nut ferrules, screws, nuts, but also high lock fasteners of the structure. So my, specifically, my question is, is this browning hardware something we should be concerned with replacing? Uh, replacing small hardware is one thing, but going in and replacing all of the high locks that are showing this, this decomposition or whatever it is on the surface is a much more labor-intensive maintenance thing. What do you So I'm not a chemist, but I did look up CAD corrosion in jet a and i learned that there is sulfur in jet a fuel that will remove the cad plating so it's probably what you're smelling and that exposes it to water in jet fuel which uh we're all taught in amp school that jet fuel loves water and tends to attract it and hold it so it's the water that's actually causing the corrosion once that cad plating has been removed the hylox is a concern because that's obviously a, a major repair to replace all those i'm going to defer to paul on whether that should be done but um <laughs> you ever done that paul in a, yes a I fuel have. tank yeah <laughs> I figured you had. <clears throat> too many times so we'll let you get back to the other but on the the structural fasteners discoloration stuff growing on them whatever don't ever worry about that it's when you begin losing the material the the head of the the high lock or uh, whatever kind of fastener it is when that material begins to go away, then you have concern. And, you know, there's kind of a 10% rule, but I think on a high lock fastener, just an easy way to do it would be to see if the imprints, the part number imprints or whatever, they're on the head of that fastener. If they're still visible, then you're probably just fine. You know, once you get all the nasty sulfur stuff off, if you can still see the, the numbers etched in the top, then I wouldn't be Generally speaking, I wouldn't be too concerned. The airframe manufacturer would be your ultimate guide on at what point it's time to pull one of those fasteners. 
But pulling a fastener out of a fuel tank opens up all sorts of other fuel leak issues. So just remember that part. <laughs> That's where it gets bad. One of my first jobs as an avionics guy at a commuter airline, because none of my avionics equipment had showed up, uh, was to crawl inside the wing of this HS-748 and help repair fuel tanks because that's what I had done with my dad in high school. So the avionics guy, first job was to do a fuel tank. I was not particularly thrilled, <laughs> but, but that's the way it worked. How did you get stuck with repairing fuel tanks and um, on jet engines? He must be an avionics guy. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just a technician. Yeah. Are you that's the new guy? The new no. guy. No, no. Oh, I'm just man. skinny enough to get up in there. Oh, oh I knew there oh, was a reason. It. Yeah, the there guy. you go. I'm a go-getter, and I'll I'll dive all the way forward and smell like yeah. it for weeks. Oh, and, really? and, he, and he's got really long arms, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You need to do something about that, or you're going to be doing tank work forever. <laughs> I need to bad. eat some more Burger King. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, you're saying he should remove the brown powdering to clean it up? Well, mostly for inspection. You can't tell what the damage is until you get rid of the stuff that's growing. And and that's always a thing. And I'm, I'm not a, a jet, I'm not a turbine guy. When you get inside those tanks, all the stuff that's growing in there and all the nastiness that you have to deal with, you know, you routinely have to go in and clean it just to just to see what the condition of those things are. And, and is it just Jet A or is this also for um, piston avgas planes? Avgas is not, well, not as if as... you keep water out of the tanks, yeah, it's yeah. not an issue in Avgas at all. But, yeah. but jet fuel, as you were saying, holds that water in suspension. It just becomes a part of the fuel. And then little critters are growing in there and, you know, <laughs> just living. It becomes its whole new ecosystem. And, you you know, you, I don't know, Chris, what sort of additives are put in the jet fuel to, to reduce that? I mean... It's obviously prist, not very prist. effective. Yeah, Prist. Yeah, we, we throw some Prist in there, and we have customers that say they, they use Prist actively and they dedicate to it. And uh, there's so much stuff. Like, I've looked at stuff under a microscope, just been curious, taking it home, looked down there, and seen stuff that look like mites and fleas and lice. And yes. It's wild really? what's in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuff lives in there. It's It's weird. That's creepy. And then wow. you burn them up. Yeah. If, hopefully. Die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's true. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, that was an interesting question. Yeah. I, I don't think many listeners are going to be crawling around in fuel tanks looking at this stuff, but it's good to know that it's there. <laughs> they can call Chris. Yeah. They can call you, he's, Chris. he's thin and he's a go-getter. <laughs> yeah. So, well... I'll, okay, I'll eat some well, more cupcakes and stay out of that. All there right. There you go. <laughs> it is Christmas time. Go, go and go. Ciao. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the question. It was a great question. Very interesting, uh, different kind of topic. So, <laughs> critters. Thanks for the podcast, guys. Okay. Take care. All right, Chris. Thank you. Our next question is from Brad, who is slinging his way through prop fact or fiction. Go ahead, Brad. <laughs> Howdy, everybody. So a very cold Southern California mor morning, near freezing. I was working with an no, instructor. Wait, 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 wait. I don't believe that. <laughs> and, and howdy. No, you can't say howdy from Southern California. There's there's something you, really wrong with that. 
It has been getting down into the 30s at, at uh, night. Not Oh, yeah, okay. not in Southern California. Come on. Did you put your little mittens on to go out to the airport? <laughs> oh, Come on. Okay, let's, oh, let, okay. let's Poor let's, Brad hadn't even got his question him, out let's yet. Let's let him ask the question before <laughs> All right, sorry. we attack him. <laughs> I, uh, no, so, I, I grew up in farm country, so that's oh, where okay, okay. comes from. That's good. Uh, okay. Central Valley. Uh, anyway, yeah. so uh, I was working with an instructor on a commercial rating, and it was cold enough that I had heard this before. Uh, I learned to fly on the East Coast, and I'd heard people talking about pulling the prop through. I guess the, the general idea is to help distribute oil throughout the cylinders, like move things around so that it's not uh. pooling or something. <laughs> um, and, and I've heard a couple different opinions on this over time, either to never do it or do it backwards, or it's only applicable to radial engines or or whatever. And so what, what's the actual truth there? Is this all old wives' tale? Is it? There's no truth to any of that. That's that's a zero. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, you, what are you trying to move? You're trying to move oil that's the you know that's sluggish like honey, right? And, and it's all sitting in the bottom of the engine, right? Or if there was any oil in the cylinders, you're going to scrape it all away when you move in that prop. If you're worried about cold, you should be worried about a preheat to get yes. the oil viscous, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's two different things. There's pre-oiling because you think there's not enough oil in the engine because it's been sitting for a while and it's drained all back. Or there's preheat where, and, and I've taken my plane where it's below 40 and you definitely don't want to crank the engine because you're going to, the oil isn't going to be moving at all and it's it's going to be metal against metal. So which one you were thinking about preheat maybe? Get a hairdryer? And... Yeah, so I had, I mean, I have Stop had experience lights. preheating before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, in Maryland, it would, you know, there'd be snow on the planes. We'd have to brush off yeah. and then bring the propane cart out. Yeah. And burn the paint off the cowling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put the little blankie on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but um, for pre-oiling, literally, you, you, take, you take the cowl off, you open up the spark plugs, you put oil in there, and then you, I think you crank it with the starter, right, um, Paul? I've never done this, but... Oh, to build up oil pressure? For pre-oiling, to, to just kind of move the oil through mm -hmm. the engine. I don't even think, do you pull the prop through? Well, you know, so there's a whole lot going on here if you decide you're going to do something that drastic. When would, yeah, you, drastic. When would you do that? I, 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 I mean, don't, if I don't, it's I'm, been sitting for years. If it's I, been I, sitting for a long time and, and the oil pump is vacated because everything's drained out yeah. of it. Yeah, you could you could pull the plugs in and and, and motor, it. motor it with the starter. But that's get not oil what, pressure. I mean, I, I always do that, for example, if, if like I'm putting in a new turbocharger or something. Sure. Uh, okay. Just yeah. to... to to get some oil pressure through the turbocharger before starting the engine. But just a, a personal, I don't want you to die kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, pulling the prop through backwards turns the pump backwards and is never going to put any oil into the engine. So just start there. So the only way you're going to build pressure is to turn the propeller in its running direction. If now, if this is for a Comanche, so you have a shower of sparks for starting, shower sparks is not going to fire the engine when you pull it through. But if you don't know what sort of starting mechanism you have on your magnetos, if you have a Cessna, single engine Cessna, you will typically have a impulse coupling. And if there's anything wrong with the ignition system, the P lead in the ignition system, like the switch is not turned off. The key came out before it got to the off position, any number of things. 
the engine can and very probably will fire when you pull the prop through. People die, many people die every year because of this. And uh, so if you're gonna turn the propeller, don't ever turn it in its running direction and it's of no value to turn it backwards. So don't go, turn it. Go, don't <laughs> turn it. Go get a preheater and th- take yeah. care of it. Yeah. Now, the reason why you turn a radial propeller is different. Yeah. Yes, that's, very that's different. To drain the oil out of the cylinders to prevent yeah. hydraulic lock when they start yeah. firing. The bottom so. cylinders will fill up with oil and yeah. you'll bust a cylinder head off. And is that because the clearances are a lot less in? No, it's because the tank is above the cylinders. Oh, so the oil's yeah. going to drain somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So on, that's you'll see that typically on, on um, radial engines. Yeah, they all get out there and pull the props through. And, and it's very cool. It's like a rite of passage. We don't yeah. get to do that as piston-opposed yep. engines. So make more sense? Is that, yeah. yeah, that's great. So you got to go get a preheater. For Southern California, that's <laughs> for the couple <laughs> yeah. days a year that I need it. Yeah, the the people in Minnesota are just laughing at us right yes. now. You know, yeah. in, in Southern California, the best way to solve that that cold problem during the winter is to sleep sleep late. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for the marine layer to leave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Turn it into the sun because the sun always comes out in California. It's just like you know the, some ideas about preheating though. The, the gas-fired preheaters, I am so glad that they, I haven't seen one of those in forever. Those things were crazy scary and way too hot. The old shop lights with an incandescent bulb in it, doesn't do any good with an LED bulb, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> one of those incandescent bulbs. And in that Comanche, you can put one right up under inside the cowling from underneath and then cover the, the cowling outlets and plug that in the night before it will warm up that entire engine to a really nice warm temperature. In Southern Cal, you might get it up to 70 degrees, but it not only warms the engine and the oil pan, but everything else in the engine compartment. You know, for the few times you're going to need it, that's a pretty awesome way to preheat. Now, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I have this distinct recollection that starting sometime during the Obama administration, it became illegal to sell incandescent bulbs. Oh, they can be found on the dark web. <laughs> they can be found <laughs> on the dark web. I've still got incandescent Christmas bulbs. I know because I threw half of them away this year. Yeah. Because they didn't work. Or go get one of those heat lamps. Yeah. You know, for heating up uh, French fries at the, you know, or I mean, just that's, a, take that's your, a lot of heat, but. Take your hair dryer, put it on high. Yeah. Just stick just it in Just let there. it blast in there. Anything. Yeah, it's better no than starting it cold. Nothing gas. No gas fire, no propane. Yeah, no no wood fires, no gas fires. So, did we uh, appropriately beat the question to death for you? <laughs> yeah, no, I had some good suggestions too. I appreciate that. Okay. All right. Well, we appreciate right. the call. Well, come back in the summer. It'll be super hot, and then you'll be wishing it were winter in Southern California. <laughs> Triple digits or no digits. <laughs> All right. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Brad. Okay, our next question is from Barry, who's wondering if EGT really does matter. Go ahead, Barry. All right, the muffler that was in my Tiger when I bought it lasted about 1,100 hours before needing replacement when I was operating Rich of Peak. Since getting a four-cylinder engine analyzer and operating near peak or slightly lean of peak, 
two mufflers have had their internals burned out within about 450 hours each. Does higher EGT or lean of peak operation affect muffler life? Wow, well, that will well, very prob- concise. Pro- pro- probably what what burned out were the flame cones, which actually the muffler's better without the flame cones. I don't know why they put those things in there. They're just <laughs> Cessna took them out of the one seventy two. Yeah, every IA I've spoken with has said the part has the flame cone in it. the The uh, type certificate requires that part. The flame car burns out, and the plane's not airworthy. That's yeah, true. you know no. those IAs are all so. No, it, it is true. It's the way the part was supposed to be built, so it's got to be like that. Um, but I, I, so I, I, I thought this was a very interesting question. So I called the local custom exhaust for aircraft parts place. He's our our master welder guy around here, and asked him about this, and. Um, he was very sure that lean of peak operations are absolutely burning exhausts out. And I was shocked because I would have thought that by the time it gets down to the muffler, it's not hot enough to really do any damage to Inconel and stainless. And he's probably referencing the high oxygen. He did say that when you operate lean of peak, it's a highly oxygenated flame front. And that's really beating up the parts. But I mean, this is empirical evidence from a shop that sees lots of exhausts come in and talks to the owners. And in his experience, he said, 90% of the guys that are running Lean of Peak are bringing me exhausts that are trashed. And he said, 10%, maybe they're lean enough that it's not doing any damage. But he said, the vast majority are being damaged by Lean of Peak. And it's, in his opinion, it's not worth doing and so, i said wow that's going to go over like a lead balloon on so this podcast. All, all the exhausts that he sees are trash that's why they get sent to him well that's is he true. getting information that that the exhausts are coming to him at low time or prematurely what he also said the exhaust that barry's got and typical cessna and beechcraft exhausts typically run five to seven hundred hours before they need to replace the flame cones so it sounds like you're a little bit shy of that, Barry, but not that far out. Boy, I sure wish somebody would come out with STC mufflers that didn't have flame cones, because those or, things are just a disaster. Well, he said you should just take all the mufflers off, and that's what the experimental community is doing, is they're running without mufflers, because A, the back pressure really doesn't buy you anything, as a matter of fact, in his opinion, and he does a lot of uh, racing and experimental stuff. He said uh, removing the muffler on a Beechcraft Bonanza increases power by 3%, so slight increase. What did anybody know the the power flow exhaust systems? Do they, do they have flame cones in them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they have to produce they're tuned exhaust, but I think they have to have back pressure within the uh, muffler itself. But the flame cones not for back pressure. The flame it cones just dissipates to, the heat. to yeah, to stop the flames from going out the pipe. Oh, and on the 172 so cool, they Cessna actually changed, and you can now install mufflers with no flame cones. Oh, I would jump at that. Yeah. The problem with the flame cone, if depending on how it deteriorates, if a chunk breaks off, it can yeah. block the outlet. I know two people that's happened to. Yeah. <laughs> that ruined their day. But um, but also consider that if, if, you, if you compare running, say, 50 rich a peak, which is what a lot of POHs recommend, and running 50 Lena P. Those are, that's the same exhaust gas temperature by definition. 
You know, That's a good point. <laughs> but maybe it's more oxygenated, like Paul was getting at. He did mention the oxygen content of the. Well, I'm, I'm thinking in terms what came to my mind when yeah, I love it when you go all find out stuff and talk to expert people about these things. But as soon as you said that, my mind was thinking of a cutting torch. And, you know, you heat the material up and then when you trigger it, it's all oxygen. And you're basically, you're rusting the part to death right, really right. fast. Right, you corrode it a lot, yep. And, um, hmm. uh, Interesting. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any data, but that would be an interesting study. Well, uh, he also urged me to talk to an engine shop and see what's their empirical evidence about overhauled engines coming in, some that were operated. But that's not necessarily the exhaust, that's the engine. So I did yeah, pose that's a question. a whole different thing. I posed the question to somebody we know and, and didn't hear a response yet. That would be interested to hear. I, I suspect he will say that the engines come in nice and clean if they've been run way well, peak, when, or the cylinders at least. You know. When I go to the various events where I speak, like with, with the Sears group especially, there's a very large number of 550s that have been running Lena Peak their entire life and they're well past 2000 hours, including mine. I'm, I'm 2,200 plus hours on the exhaust. No, no, no. You oh, said oh, on okay. the engine. Yeah. Talking yeah. about the engines. Well, Oh, you know, that's true. My exhaust, I don't know how old my exhaust is. I wonder if someone's done any sort of true to life testing of Richa peak versus Lena peak exhaust in terms of how it does react to yeah. exhaust mufflers. Yeah, I'd like to see some controlled test. I mean, it's great to get, you know, just a hearsay from a shop, which is they get they see a lot of exhausts, but there could be many reasons why these things are happening. It's not a controlled experiment. Yeah. But, you know, as Paul was saying, virtually all of the Cirrus fleet operates Lena Peak. And of course, it's a mixture of, of turbos and normally aspirated, and the, the turbos don't have mufflers, they have turbochargers. It, it is really interesting, Barry, that you got so much more time on your first run muffler from when you bought the aircraft. And then now, under your operation, it's it's running significantly shorter. Yeah, w one point on my Lena Peak operation, I typically am flying at relatively low power and only 5 or 10 degrees Lena Peak. So as Mike pointed out before, it's not the equivalency of 50 degrees rich and 50 degrees lean. It's 50 degrees rich and five degrees lean. Mm -hmm. So there is a yeah. temperature differential between yeah. the, my two operations. And to me, it seemed reasonable that that and the difference in oxygen partial pressure was leading the corrosion. And you look at the flame cone in the, in the earlier years and you see the holes in it getting bigger. Yeah. And I think that's the analog to Mike's pinholes. Mm -hmm. It's the material... It's being, degrading, yeah, yeah, abrading away. Being worn away. I would have thought it's colder by the time it gets to the exhaust because the EGT is measured, what, four yeah, inches two in, below? Two inches. Two, two inches, inches below the, the typically, head. Typically, yeah. But this person that I spoke to said that by the time it gets down to the muffler, it gets forced into these little nooks and crannies and it focuses the heat and the energy right there. And that's where it does the degradation on those flame cones. So... I wonder if they they are manufacturing them differently now than 20 years ago or 15 years ago. That could be another reason. For More expensively. More expensively. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. My old muffler prices, it was still saving me money 
to run Lena Peak. At today's muffler prices, yeah. it, it, is, uh, it is the wrong direction. Yeah, he said your mufflers in the Tiger were produced by the Alano Corporation, which is no longer in business. Where do you source your, you just go to. Know, Dolly, is it? Dolly. You go to Dolly, Dolly. and they overhaul yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if the manufacturing is different, but it's hard to. Might check here. with uh, AWI and see what they make. Another exhaust manufacturer. Another exhaust manufacturer, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they can put in like an extra thick flame cone or something. Accidentally on purpose. Or, or accidentally leave them out. That, that, well, I like accidentally that leaving them out would be the best, the best thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for the question, Barry. I thought it was a great question. Very I don't know about the answer. The question yeah. is great. <laughs> no, we all, we all agree that we want to get rid of flame cones. Yes. That's right. And, and that's the one thing it's doing for me. Now, all we need is an IA that will sign off or doesn't have a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good luck finding a, an inspector without a flashlight. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, have a good day. You too. Our next question is from Jeff, who's trying to keep his students in the green arc, maybe. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. Close enough. Hi, guys. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for taking the call and the question. I'm a CFI with about 1,600 hours, 900 in the right seat, and mostly in airplanes that uh, have their wings on the right side, the top side, not the bottom. Yeah, where birds yes. have them. No, no, no offense, Mike, um, but you do fly a Cessna, so I don't know where they yeah, got the. Right. Well, my 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 first airplane was a 182. I love those yeah. airplanes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, those low low wing airplanes are the devil's work. <laughs> That's right. How about two wing airplanes? <laughs> I'm a big follower of uh, the school of Paul's uh, Tlar. All right, um, <laughs> but there's a converse to the Tlar, and it's that doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So um, I just picked up a new client. He has a 172i model, 1968, uh, 0320E2D. And I'm sitting in the right seat. And right in front of me on that particular model is the TAC. And I'm looking at it. And like I said, I got about 700 hours in a 172. And that TAC just does not look right. It's something's out to lunch. So I look in the POH and it's got engine instrument markings and it talks about three arcs, the inner, the middle, the outer green arc. And in a Cessna, it's generally somewhere between 2100 to red line, 2650, mm -hmm. whatever it is. So it's like, so then I went back and did a logbook review and I dug in the logbooks and I found that the original tack was replaced in 1993 and it hadn't been changed since. And it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. It's been signed off for 29 years as being okay. Those darn IAs. <laughs> I know. And it's like, how am I just, I don't know. I guess, how do we know that we have the right equipment that was installed? And, you know, it, there's an AC out there, 20-88A, that talks about correct markings on stuff. And anyway, I, I just thought it was really weird that it had gone 29 years and come to find out it's not the right tech. And. Uh, I let the owner know, and he's no longer a client of mine. So <laughs> I don't, I don't he know fired you because you noticed his tachometer might be wrong. I don't know. We, <laughs> we haven't had that 
formal discussion on why I'm not working with him anymore. Maybe it's just me and my personality, but anyway. You're so type A. (laughs) So how do you know? I mean, you guys didn't do the annual. You would have likely caught it, but how does that happen? I mean, you don't count on that. Yeah, I wouldn't count on that. (laughs) Is that part of the checklist that, hey, we just do a quick cursory review of the instruments? Markings are typically part of a checklist that I've used, but I don't always look at them, right? You always kind of just assume, yeah, it looks like there's a tack. You kind of don't look closely. And it's it's redlined correctly. So the tack, I have flown in some of those airplanes with the wings on the wrong side, and it looked like one of those tacks. It looked like a Piper tack. Yeah, and for the people that can't see the picture, the tack he's talking about has a huge green arc that goes down to like 1,500, all the way up to... 500 to 2,700. Yeah, that's pretty... Big green arc. That must be like a Piper Cub or something. I don't know. It's big. Oh, that's a Cessna. Is it? An older Cessna. Really? I've never seen one like that. You can tell by the dash and the amp meter. Oh, the, the, but the tack that I was looking at, the one that was incorrect was from 500 to red line versus the correct one, 2200 to red yeah, line. Yeah, Paul's looking at it, right? Yeah, at there's, there's two. So the, the one in question has the, a solid green arc. From 500 RPM all the way to 27, which is where it has the red line, and it's mounted in a Cessna. Was what I was pointing out because of the the arrangement of the fuel gauges and the shape of the the amp meter and all that. Then the second one is also appears to be in a Cessna, but it its green arc has no arcs or markings of any kind until 2200 RPM, and then it has an SL at 2500. And then a five at 2600, and I can't make out what it says at 2700, but that's the red line. And those are maximum RPMs for those altitudes. So 2500 would be your maximum RPM at sea level, and then 2700 at higher, because you don't have a constant speed prop. Now, so this isn't really, well, maybe this is part of your question. Is an IE gonna catch this during an annual inspection? I would Probably say not. not not likely. Not likely. This kind of detail is that's really difficult because mechanics see, or inspectors see so many different airplanes. If they just happen to know, I might notice something like this on a 210 because I see so many 210s. But you brought me a Skyhawk. I would look at that, that first picture with the big long green arc, and I'd say, well, it's 2700. That's red line. That's the number I'm concerned about. But the you know, the other the other thing that strikes me is whether that green arc is really actionable in any way on a Skyhawk because it's a fixed pitch prop. You don't have control over the RPM. The green arc is, is a quote, normal operating range, but it's not, it's not a limitation. 2,700 is the limitation and the 2,700 is, is, is painted on there as a red line. So it, 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 it's technically not correct. It should, it should comport with what the POH says, and it clearly doesn't. But does it really matter other than technically? I don't think so, probably. There isn't anything you can do about it. So the only other thing that I thought was, because as, as I was taught in a 172, that anytime you operate outside of the green arc, carb heat is applied before you come out does it say that somewhere i didn't find that anywhere i did look for that 
I'll have to talk to my primary flight. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Don't, don't talk to your primary RP, flight instructor. But, talk no. to the POH. Yeah, I, I looked through the POH and didn't see anything that said that. Yeah. So, you know, instructors, flight instructors are really good at taking whatever they learned incorrectly well, and adding that to the next but, person but incorrectly. You're, you're, you're insulting him. He's a flight instructor. No, on, this off. is just a fact. We we insult mechanics all well, the mechanics time, so are, it's only fair that we throw some back at the instructor. Yeah, mechanics are equally guilty of this. Sure. Yeah. I led with that. <laughs> and I'm both a flight instructor and a mechanic, and I'm, yeah. I'm guilty as hell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Going back to tack, so I own a biplane, and the tack in my biplane has a white arc. What do you think about that? <laughs> it, it was a case of, hey, we've got a tack. Let's just throw it on the plane, and it wasn't painted correctly. And you know what? I just ignore the white arc. It's got the proper red line, which I think is the most important thing. Yep. So As long and, as you don't and, have an, an AD or a limitation airplane. for vibration. The, the then... proper, I mean, the proper fix for this if if this guy was still your client, which he isn't, would be to send the the tack to an instrument shop and have them remark the dial. It, it, uh, he, he doesn't need a new tack or anything. It, the instrument shops mark the dials all the time. When I when I added the vortex generators to my airplane, I, I had to have the airspeed indicator remarked because it changed some stall speeds and stuff. So that's a pretty common thing to do. I mean, and and if you were back in 93, if you were the AMP replacing this, how do you find the correct one? Usually it's by part number, right? So you just get the, and I looked on the chief website and they're selling the exact tack that you're talking about, the picture that you showed for 800 bucks, you can buy one and they listed the Cessna part number. So these people did kind of what like my biplane builder did. He just found something on the shelf and said, this will work, put it in there and it's been like that ever since. <laughs> right. Well, thank you guys very much. Appreciate and, it. And, and call your customer up and, and see if you can patch things up. Take the, no, no. The, the tack has been replaced with a serviceable one. So oh, it, it's okay. been repaired and corrected. So I don't know if it was the bill that uh, caused the consternation. Offer <laughs> <laughs> well, him a free lesson. We'll get it back. Yeah, there you go. Pilots well, love freebies. <laughs> no no good deed goes unpunished. That's right. But this was interesting. I've never seen a tack with a, a thick, a medium thick, and a thin uh, green area. So that was a new one for me. Very interesting. Yeah. And then the AC actually talks about that, that there can be multiple, multiple green arcs that, that overlap. Well, thanks, Jeff. That was great. Yeah. Thanks, Good guys. Question, Jeff. Thanks for calling. And we like your screen background, by the way. Yeah. Very cool. Take care. See ya. Well, that's a wrap on another podcast. We count on you, our listeners, to let us know what we got right and, more importantly, what we got wrong. We always appreciate hearing from you. Most importantly, keep sending us those tricky questions to see if you can stump Paul. You can send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. I don't know if I'm going to say see or not. After yeah, you, that. You, you, you ever notice that they never tell us what we got right, but they always, always tell us what, what we, we got, got wrong. wrong. <laughs> I'm we'll sorry. This, later. Isn't, this isn't part of the script. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. We'll see you. <laughs>